You're listening to the Forefront Church Sermon Podcast. Forefront Church is a progressive Christian community more interested in asking good questions than having all the right answers. Thanks for listening. Josh Lee, one of the co-pastors here, Reverend Josh Raderly, uh, one of the co-pastors here at Forefront uh, over teaching and community. And we're in the fourth week of our Lenten series talking about cultivating and letting go. Um, and some of you may recall in 2014 when World Vision, one of the largest charitable organizations in the country, uh, it provides 3.5, uh, aid to 3.5 million children in nearly 100 countries. They decided that they were going to reverse their decision and their policy, and they were going to start employing married gay and lesbians. Well, many conservative evangelicals lost their ever-living mind when this news came out. And so what did they do? They pulled aid from oppressed, starving children around the world to stop the gays. Can you just sit with that for a minute? How insane that is. How unloving and hypocritical that that, that the thought was, well, we'll let the children starve so that the gays can't get married and so that they don't hire these individuals at this institution. So what did they do? What did World Vision decide to do? World Vision decided to reverse their decision. They decided that that they would not hire gay and lesbians and and they released a statement, and this is one of the quotes from the statement. They said, We acknowledge that we made a mistake and chose to revert our long-standing conduct policy requiring sexual abstinence of all single employees and faithfulness within the marital covenant between a marriage between a man and a woman. And then they had the nerve at the end of the letter to add this line. While World Vision U.S. stands firmly on the biblical view of marriage, we strongly affirm that all people, regardless of their sexual orientation, are created by God and to be loved and treated with dignity and respect. I know. It's, it, 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 it baffles me a little bit because it, what, what, what hits me here is how, how can you uh, compromise your values enough to be able to say that LGBTQ people deserve to be treated with dignity and respect, but we will not treat them with dignity and respect in our hiring processes. It just doesn't make any sense. It's heartbreaking. It's contradictory. And the whole process, quite frankly, just breaks my heart. And many of us know what it's like to be around certain Christians or to have been a part of certain Christian institutions that make certain statements or choose to separate themselves from certain people who draw lines in the sand. It seems that we have always been a part of our human nature to do this. We don't always want to associate ourselves with certain types of people. Sometimes we don't want to associate ourselves with certain types of people because um, it's maybe an endorsement of their lifestyle or their choices, or by associating ourselves with them or, in, or hiring them or support giving to an organization that would hire them, perhaps that will eventually normalize that behavior or that action or those beliefs. Or maybe even more this, some of us don't want to associate because it feels more righteous to be able to have another subsect of society to say, well, we're not them. We're up here. Or to be able to have your own struggles, your own sins, your own mistakes, your own things that you deal with. We all have it. 
and to be able to say, yes, but those people are actually worse. To create another subsect of society. And, and world, where World Vision found itself in 2014, where we find ourselves here in 2023, is precisely where Jesus found himself over 2,000 years ago when a story is told to us in the book of Luke, chapter 15. The story begins like this in verse 1. It says, Tax collectors and other notorious sinners often came to listen, and teach, uh, to, the, uh, listen to Jesus teach. Verse 2, this made Pharisees and teachers of religious law complain that he was associating with such sinful people, even eating with them, one might say, even employing them. It's fascinating that the, the two groups that are called out here, tax collectors and notorious sinners, um, because they're actually two very different sects and two very different sorts of groups, and this is why I think they're, 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 they're separated. Tax collectors were usually people who were part of a certain neighborhood or community, so in this context, uh, fellow Jews who decided that they were going to sell out their people, and they were going to work for the Roman government, moving around their neighborhoods, collecting the taxes, and in the way that they made pay was by chipping people off, basically. So you owe five bucks in taxes. Actually, I'm going to charge you, I'm going to charge you 10. I'm going to pocket the other. And maybe the next person, you owe 10, but maybe I'm actually going to charge you 20 because I know that I could take advantage of you and I'm going to pocket the 10 and then I'm going to give the rest to the government back. And so they would take advantage of this system and this, po this power of hierarchy and people didn't like them. So it wasn't just like how it is that we're all dealing with this feeling right now. We all hate tax collectors right now. It's that time of the year. But it wasn't that same kind of context. There wasn't clear and fast rules. All that the government cared about from the tax collectors was they got their portion. They didn't care what they needed to do to pay themselves in the end or if they hurt their own communities. So tax collectors, maybe in our modern-day equivalent, maybe we could think about them as like politicians who maybe pass legislation and certain laws because somebody's padding their pockets. Maybe we could think of tax collectors in our modern day as Wall Street investors who choose to embezzle in order to, in, in order to uh, secure their bottom line, not saying that all investors are bad, by the way, just the ones that choose to overlook certain things. Maybe law certain lawyers, not saying all lawyers are bad, Rachel, don't worry, it's okay. Um, <laughs> But certain, <laughs> out of the mouth of you. Um, and so lawyers who choose to maybe defend somebody or a certain case because they know they're going to get money, but they know that the person that they're defending is wrong. But they choose to do it because it gets them forward and ahead in life. Maybe it's appraisers of home values, which we know we've seen so many studies, and particularly in this last year, studies of people whose homes are valued at different rates depending on the color of their skin as well as banking redliners who decide certain communities' homes are not worth values. Why all to further the bottom dollar? Maybe it's police officers who, who abuse their commitment to protect and serve instead of protecting and serving all, not just the white and the wealthy. I don't know who it is. Obviously, we, we know that not all tax collectors were bad at that time, right? And, or we know that not all these individuals are always bad in all of the ways in their professions, but sometimes some of the things that people do when they're given power can be bad. Our just like our bodies aren't bad, but sometimes the things we do in our bodies can cause harm and be bad. Reality is, is these were people that others did not associate with because they were harming the community. They were, they were, they were contributing to systemic and generational oppression and poverty. But then there was the other group, right? The sinners. Sinners. How, how did they determine who was sinners? Pharisees determined who sinners were based on people who did not follow certain ceremonial religious laws. 
And the Pharisees believed that if they were around people who weren't following the religious laws and beliefs, that they would make themselves unclean. And if they were on by people who were unclean, and they were unclean, and they were unacceptable to God. So what did they do? They kept the distance. How many of you ever grew up with your parents telling you this? You are the company that you keep. Yeah? That's exactly what the Pharisees thought. Oh, if, if, we, if we're around them, we'll become like them. We'll become unclean, undirty, dirty like them. Can't be around those kind of people. Stay away from them. Perhaps um, some of us could think about this in our all modern society as well. As we, we choose maybe, uh, on both sides we choose to do this, maybe we draw the equivalent to traditional marriage, uh, traditional marriage or gender rules or the idea that if we're around certain people who believe certain things that, that it, it will corrupt us or convince us to believe false doctrine or if maybe folks who, who we choose not to be around because they're so primitive and uneducated and ill-informed and we don't have the patience to deal with their ignorance. I don't know who it is for you, but who is it that you choose to not dine with? Who is it that you choose to not associate with? Who is it that you company you won't keep? Who is it that you look down upon? Those are the people that Jesus is hanging out with and that the religious leaders are like, tis, tis, tis. The reality is, is we all have either likely at some point been on either side of these equations. The person being looked down upon and the person looking the down upon. This is how we often position ourselves all throughout history and human nature. I want to invite us to, to, to read um, one of our values here as a church. It's uh, one of our three values, and it's uncommon kinship. And I'd love for us all to read it together as one voice. It was almost like a liturgical practice. Um, and, and, and I want us to think about this in regards to this message this morning. Let us read together. We are a diverse community that is committed to generously caring for one another, no matter who you are or where you are in your journey. Our value of uncommon kinship means that unexpected friendships form across various identities. Meal trains or grocery store drop-offs are generously coordinated for a congregant who we may have never met. Next. Bonding over coffee with someone in a different political party, a small group who will celebrate your coming out anniversary when your family is in denial, finding a way to pray together in a group when half the room doesn't believe in an intervening God and the other half believes miracles are possible because we value unity over uniformity. It's one of our, our core values that amidst a church that has lots of, different uh, lots of different beliefs, we are all united by our shared values. So a lot of churches that organize themselves by their 17-point doctrinal statement, and if you don't agree with all of these beliefs and you're not part of us, we sort of flip it on its head. We are united by our shared values. And under our values are the expressions of many different beliefs and thoughts depending on where we are in our own journeys. I can't help but think about how often and how difficult it would probably be to find someone of a different political party here in our very own church to have a, a meal with. I think it's a point of growth for us who are dealing with our own trauma and our own hurt, finally escaping the flock that caused us so much pain, perhaps finding ourselves as the one escaping from the 99. But reality is, is we are a church that must learn to love all people no matter where they are. Love can have boundaries, but love still is love. I can remember being a part of a, a church before called Mago Day Church that was distributing food out of, uh, there was a woman that was distributing food out of her car outside of the church. 
and as she was distributing this food out of her car to folks who were in need, the congregation sort of looked at this woman and were like, wow, this, she's like doing all this out of her car. We have this building right here. Let's find a way to partner with her, and maybe we could, she could serve meals right here out of the church, and we could partner her with her to further and advance the needs of the people in the community. Now, there were some in the church who sort of were like, well, shouldn't we find out like what she believes and that she you know, aligns with us and see if she's a Christian or not? But overall, the church decided no, because part of our values was to align with people, maybe who we had differences in beliefs, um, but, had this, but had a unity around the same values. And one of our values was to care for the marginalized and to feed the poor and the hungry in our community. And so we said, who cares what she thinks or what she believes? Let's partner with her to feed people. And while a lot of other churches would make people listen to sermons and devotionals before they got fed, we were like, they're not doing that here. The reality is, is, is what was beautiful about this connection was that we were able to find a place of shared value amidst difference to be able to meet a need. What if, church... What if simply we found areas of shared values to be in relationship with people who maybe we don't believe with or align with on everything? So what does Jesus do after being called out by all these religious leaders for associating with these marginalized and cancel culture characters of their day? Natasha's salad sermon last week, you nailed it. <laughs> if you haven't listened, you've got to go back and listen to it. It's good. This is what Jesus says. Jesus in Jesus, Jesus fashions responses to tell a story. Verse 4, he says, If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them gets lost, what will he do? Won't he leave the 99 others in the wilderness and go search for the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he will joyfully carry it home on his shoulders. When he arrives, he will call together all of his friends and neighbors saying, Rejoice with me, because I have found my lost sheep. In the same way, there is more joy in heaven over one lost sinner who repents and returns to God than over 99 others who are righteous and haven't even strayed away. And I sort of picture Jesus, like after the death story, sort of looking up and like looking at the religious leaders. Like you queens are the 99. <laughs> and you think you haven't strayed away. But guess what? I'm sitting here with the one. And you think you're too good to sit with the one. But you're not. But you're not. And you can't see that I have found the one that you have either kicked out of the flock. Or who finally escaped your abuse. And I... I have left this little group of yours, this little gang of fun, little church gathering, social group. And I have found the one, and you can't be happy. You know why? Because they're going to tell on you. And you can't handle what they're going to say. You can't receive what they're going to say. Why does Jesus tell them this story, though, even more than that? I think if you peel the layers back, I think Jesus is trying to help them see a different view of who God is. Because they're treating people the way that they think God would treat people. What you think about God is the most important thing about you. Somebody said that at some point. I don't know who it was. Because it allows and it informs the way in which you will treat yourself and the way you will treat others. And they viewed God as what? God separated God's self from other people who were unclean and sinful and bad because God can't be around that. So then what do they do? Well, we're going to separate ourselves from people who are unclean and are bad and are sinful. It, God is deconstructing their view and their idea and their understanding of who God is. Consequently, they didn't believe God would associate with sinners, so they're not going to associate with sinners. You know the story of Jonah in Scripture 
where Jonah's told to go and preach the gospel to these people, and he doesn't want to go, he doesn't want to go. He says, they don't deserve it. They don't deserve to hear the gospel. They're terrible people. And God's like, you have to go. And he's like, well, I don't want to go. And God's like, well, then this is what we're going to do. You're going to hang out in the belly of a whale for a little while. You're in timeout. And, and, then, I'm gonna, and, then, and then you're going to go. And so then he went. And then he preached, and what did they do? They were like, yeah, we are terrible people. We probably should change some things. And they changed some things, and Jonah couldn't be happy about it. Jonah's sitting under a tree, pouting about it. He just can't embrace this idea. And he's pouting just like the older son in the prodigal son story, who when the young son comes home and he's forgiven for his wayward ways and his mistakes and sort of missing the mark and taking advantage of the situation, the older son cannot rejoice at this moment that his brother has finally come to and recognized the error of his ways. Why? Because he thinks, he doesn't deserve that. I deserve that. I've been the good one. I'm the one that's sticking around. And you, he just came home and you gave him all these lavishes of goods. Well, guess what? Everything that was left in the inheritance, that was supposed to be mine. He already got his. So now I'm getting even less. This isn't fair. This isn't right. And so he couldn't rejoice about this great thing that this one sheep that has come home and finally come to. In the air of his way, they couldn't rejoice. It's the same thing that the Pharisees are dealing with. It's the mindset, I deserve God's love because I follow the rules. I do things right. I'm clean. I'm pure. I make the right decisions. Those people, they're bad. They don't make the right decisions. They're evil. They're dirty. They're disgusting. I won't associate with them because if I associate with them, I'll become like them. Or if I don't become like them, God won't want anything to do with me because God can't be around sin and I'm not going to be sinful. See what's happening? You see this, this view of God and God, Jesus is coming and telling the story and trying to say, let me give you a new vision of God because your vision of God is keeping you from the people who were created in God's image. He's coming and he's tearing it all apart. One commentator that I was reading says, repentance is caused by God's love, not by condemnation. By Jesus going to look for the one, he's saying, I'm going to look for my people by extending love to them. But you're trying to get people to come back into the fold through condemnation, guilt, and shame. Anybody, I, know, I know I don't have this kind of mother, but I know that there are mothers like this out in the world, or even probably parents as well, who like, oh, you're not coming home for Christmas? Well, you know, it could be grandma's last. Well, your brother, you know, he's not coming home either. I guess it'd just be you and your, your parent and I. We're just going to be home by ourselves all right i'm buying the ticket right little condemnation little guilt little shame to get you to get you where you want to be right it's exactly what the religious leaders are doing maybe if we isolate them enough maybe if we put them on the outside enough maybe if we feel, make them feel bad about themselves enough maybe if we withdraw our funds from world vision maybe if we ignore the one sheep maybe then it'll move them to do what we think they're supposed to do maybe then it'll make them not so sinful, and then, I'll, then, then maybe then we'll associate with them. Maybe if, but only if they can get to our social economic status. Repentance is not the cause of God's love, but the result of God's love, James Edwards says, one theologian. And I want us to think about that this morning. Think about what we were taught about God and what the religious leaders were taught about God and what Jesus is bringing. For example, um, it should be a slide that says sin and separation. I'd love for folks to be able to look at this. So this is what we were taught, sin and separation. Technically, because of our sin, God has to separate from us. God can't be in our presence, right? Many of us were taught this. And, and, and so God dies on the cross 
so that, because somebody has to pay the price for our bad choices. Somebody has to go in time out. Somebody has to get a spanking. Someone has to, you know, pay the price for the choices. And because Jesus paid it, now we don't have to get the spanking. Now we don't have to, to go into time out. Now we, God's not angry with us. Uh, and so the, 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 the guilt, the shame, the pain, the, the, all of the, the consequences, it shifts. Many of us were taught this. But I wonder if it's not that. I wonder if it's this. I wonder if it's shame and estrangement. I think this is perhaps precisely what Jesus is getting to time and time again when he tells these stories. Shame and estrangement. Instead, it's the feeling that I am separated from God, but I am not actually. This is exactly why the old, the, the younger, okay, sure, all right, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the belief, right? The, older, the younger son thinks, I can't come home, there's no way my father would want me again. His arms are wide open. Nothing stopped you from coming home. God didn't stop you. Shame and your own estrangement did. Adam and Eve hide in the garden behind the bush. God's right there. They're the ones hiding. They're the ones estranged from God themselves. They've estranged themselves. God never turns God's back on them. And literally, so that they will come out and be in God's presence, and so that they will see that God always loved them, that God's heart and affection towards them never changed, God literally kills an animal and makes them clothes to cover up their nakedness, just so that they'll feel okay in God's presence. Not so that God will feel okay in their presence. God made them naked. He's fine with it. But they're the ones, so that they'll be in God. Come on, that's, that's truth. That's a progressive Christianity for the next 500 years right there. Shame and estrangement. And I'm not the first one to say this or come up with these ideas. Jesus is. Jesus is. Jesus is trying to get the, the religious leaders of their day to see what they have done and what their view of God is and how their view of God is causing them to cause shame and estrangement from those who God desires to see how much God loves them. God is on a search. God is on a search for people to be able to see how much God loves them. And, if, and they grew up in a, these people in this context at this time, they grew up in a time in history when it was believed that there was no way that the gods could ever love them or look good upon them, right? And so they're sacrificing animals and they're giving up livestock and they're, and they're sacrificing children. And not just, not just Christianity, but religions all around the world are offering sacrifices to move the gods to be acceptable to them. And so Jesus comes and says, you are acceptable. I love you. I made you and I knew you had capacity to make bad choices. But I also knew that the body that I made could also make good choices. But I, none of that is a surprise to me. I loved you regardless from the beginning, naked or clothed. So stop hiding. Stop avoiding coming home. Stop excluding yourself and others. Sin is anything that contradicts human flourishing, healing, and wholeness in the world, Stan Mitchell says. And so when God calls us to repent, and, and Natasha highlighted this last week, repentance is to change our minds about God, to change our hearts, or to change our mind, our heart about something, right? So what if Jesus in this story is calling us to change our heart and our minds about God and to be able to see the call to bring fullness and wholeness to the world in our minds, in our bodies, in our view of God, and in our relationship with one another. This is what God's calling us to. To not estrange ourselves from one another, but to call one another into a new life of wholeness together. One where no one is considered unclean or unworthy of our time or of our love. So your sermon last week, it forced us to ask questions. It forced us to ask, who would we be willing to who, are, who do we separate ourselves from? 
Who do we keep on the outside that we choose to not love or associate with? And by choosing to not associate with, we also remove the opportunity to love them and for them to be able to experience the love of God despite where they're at in their seasons of their lives. And that sermon forced me to ask the question, and why do we keep people on the outside? And why is, I hope you're getting it this morning, it's because of how we view God. How you view God is how you will view the others who God's created in their image. And so I have to ask myself the question, whenever I am trying to figure out who to be in relationship with and who not to be in relationship with, I have to ask myself this question, and I hope that you sit with this. Am I creating a boundary between myself and another person to hurt them or rather to protect myself from further hurt? Because the latter has a place and a time as you heal and you ground yourself and as they understand where they cannot hurt you anymore. And there's boundaries and they need to be wise about what they say or do around you. But the first part, that is the pharisaical spirit <laughs> that says, I'm going to hurt you to cause you to repent. I'm going to separate myself from you so that you are forced to your knees and to make a change. That doesn't really happen. And unfortunately, even in the gay community, many of our families did that to us. And then we turn it right back on them. Doesn't work. And so you only can answer that question for yourself with each individual person in your life. Am I creating a boundary? Am I creating a boundary to hurt them or to protect myself from hurt? If it's to protect yourself from hurt, praise God, keep it strong. If it's to hurt them, dear Lord Jesus, soften our hearts, open our ear, eyes, open our ears that we may embrace the spirit of Christ that dines with people who look different, who act different, who believe different. For it is in only in that place that the one sheep that is on the outside or maybe the 99 that are throwing stones at the one and cast them out that there will be a change. Let us find ourselves posturing ourselves in a place of love. And if we could change that, if we could change that, I think we could change the world. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Forefront Sermon Podcast. To learn more about Forefront and how we're ushering in the next 500 years of Christianity, visit ForefrontChurch.com.